0: Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural, and the just plain weird. And thank you for coming back to this series on cryptozoology, focusing for yet another week on the theories surrounding yeti, bigfoot, sasquatch, and other large, hairy, bipedal, possibly primates. So this week we're going to be looking into some of the Native American legends surrounding Sasquatch-like beasts and particularly exploring the ways in which they are not like what we have been exploring so far. So it can be quite easy to cherry-pick aspects from a vast and changing cultural heritage to fit one's own hypothesis, but I think to simplify greatly in what I have found, there is more different In the Native American legend around these creatures then there is similar to what we have already been talking about and I didn't expect that initially going in. So this is going to be a two-parter today as we are going to go over some of the context and background around how these legends were perceived to Western audiences as well as going over some illuminating earlier encounters between prospectors and hairy mountain men. And next week we will conduct a brief survey of the actual Native American myths, so do stick around for that as these two do go together and inform on each other. So this week's discussion is particularly indebted to Raincoast Sasquatch, the Bigfoot Sasquatch records of southeast Alaska, coastal British Columbia, and northwest Washington, from Puget Sound to Yakutat by J. Robert Alley, as well as Tribal Bigfoot by David Paul Eders, and The Evolution of Monsters in North American Exploration and Travel Literature, 1607-1930, to a thesis by Adam Schultz, which I found online and hope that it is okay for me to reference. I also got a lot of use out of nativelanguages.org Although, unfortunately, the site is fairly deprecated and there are a lot of really interesting looking links, which unfortunately turned out to be dead. Ultimately, there are some big challenges around researching predominantly oral traditions. I have tried my best this week, but it is not perfect sort of survey of the situation. And I will say out of the gate, I apologise for any and all of my pronunciation because it's likely to be awful, but I will look up the pronunciation of any terms before I get to them. But without much further ado, let's get into it. The Tule River Indian Reservation in southern San Joaquin Valley, California, is a permanent home of the Yucca Native American tribe. It is particularly famous because of painted rock and its pictographs apparently representing a Bigfoot family. On the underside of a large boulder, protected from the elements, are the figures. When David Paulides visited the area in research for his book Tribal Bigfoot, the assistant who escorted him explained some of the tribal history with Bigfoot. The Yukuts believed that Bigfoot was their friend, and kept grizzly bears, mountain lions, wolves, and other large mammals away from their people. They called Bigfoot Hairy Man, and that name has stuck through the generations. But it was a relationship of give and take, and mutual respect. It was warned that they might catch and eat small children who wandered around at night alone but there were no documented cases of this happening, so clearly this warning worked. It is estimated that the drawings could be as old as 2,000 years old and also include a lizard, a centipede, beaver, and the hairy man was placed amidst creatures that are all known and accepted animals of the region. That was to quote Paul Edes. And again to quote, Native Americans were not known to waste their time drawing pictographs of fantasy creatures. Now, whether it is as clear-cut as that implies is a debate in itself, but in his argument, the Bigfoot was clearly significant to the Yucca people, as it took up a huge portion of the boulder in life-size fantastical detail. But Native American and First Nations legends actually paint a less cohesive picture than modern Bigfoot folktales. They represent similarities between numerous varied peoples and a much longer continuity of legend than the modern Bigfoot, which is quite a recent creation. So pointing back to certain Sasquatch-like legends is a kind of cheatsy way of claiming a lineage for the modern creature, but prescribes characteristics that often aren't present in many of these stories. It has been suggested that many of these legends serve a practical purpose, like the Bigfoot hairy man we just talked about, as a form of social control, or cautioning youth against dangerous animals or the dangers of the elements themselves. But again, also some introduce mythological, spiritual, and paranormal elements which contrasts with the hominid theories we've previously been dealing with. The Sasquatch of today seemingly exists somewhere between these purposes. And to quote Schultz, what came to be called the Sasquatch was a hybrid creation that arose through the blending of European and indigenous traditions. So there is no definitive work on Native American legends, as this would encompass dozens of tribes with rich histories of their own, with similarities, differences, that can't be condensed into one narrative. Today we are narrowing down to specifically Sasquatch-like legends and exploring how they differ from the Bigfoot approaches we have explored so far. Says J. Robert Alley in Raincoast Sasquatch, Many natives repeatedly insisted the creature was real by anyone's standards and very much alive along the West Coast. To them, at least, it was in many ways well known. But many of those fighting for recognition for the Sasquatch in scientific circles, such as Canadians John Green and Rene de Hinden, neither men were very enthusiastic about native folklore, although Green had certainly listened to his share of reports, some with a supernatural twist to them. To the men, scepticism, ridicule, successive hoaxes and infighting meant that there were significant hurdles in the way of getting the creature they believed to physically exist in the Pacific Northwest and the Rocky Mountains, to have some kind of formal scientific recognition. Entangling the creatures with legend and the supernatural only added more hurdles in their mind. Nonetheless, most of those who we've spoken about in the cryptozoological world Included in their works at least a brief overview of the legends associated with the creatures of the Pacific Northwest. Ivan Sanderson's Abominable Snowmen Legends Come to Life in 1961, and John Green's On the Track of the Sasquatch in 1968, being a couple of influential and high-profile examples. But I would argue that they had other reasons for not leaning too much on native legends. As in brief, although they do support their hypothesis in some startling ways, there are numerous points of stark contrast, which in turn makes you wonder if these stories are truly dealing with the same creature. The perception of Native American legends also underwent a sort of transformation underneath European colonists, which we will talk about now. In Red Earth, White Lies, Native American attorney and professor Vine Deloria Jr. says this, to paraphrase, The Native American explanation is always cast aside as a superstition, precluding them from having an acceptable status as human beings and reducing them in the eyes of educated people to a pre-human level of ignorance. That is to say that Native American beliefs have been situated in opposition to science by an ongoing process with a specific aim, Their aim being to dehumanize the Native American people and their experiences. So I do not want to participate in that process today, so I'm not going to be holding Native American experiences up against some kind of scientific test. I'm going to be looking at the ways a selection of the legends and folklore of the region differ from cryptozoological theory, as I believe there is a comparison that some people make too lightly between the two. The result being the claim that the modern Bigfoot as we know of it today has roots in Native American experience and that it survives in oral legend, thus supporting some relic population, extinct megafauna and fossil ancestor theories. But I think this comparison is an unfair one. Folklore, native masks and totems by themselves do not in any way prove that there is a scattered population of nocturnal upright apes or fossil men strolling unnoticed through the forests of North America, yet a mere legend cannot leave tracks of hair, and it doesn't jump easily from one culture to another, native or otherwise. So I think the accounts are simply too varied to really support this hypothesis without some serious cherry picking. But as mentioned, we are going to be cherry picking a little today, as it is just beyond the scope of this podcast to get a true overview of all Sasquatch-like native experiences. But we're going to start today by taking a step back to the early 1900s, where the earliest written accounts of Sasquatches by non-natives on western shores are a bridge between native beliefs and a larger body of more recent reports. These accounts not only give us some interesting detail on the Sasquatch legend, but they also outlined a kind of cultural struggle at play between Western prospectors often, and their encounters with this seeming beast of nature. As Adam Schultz explains in his thesis, we see the place of the man-like monster shift in European writings, As a result of the European Enlightenment, this age of reason saw monsters relegated to folklore or else reconceptualized as ordinary parts of the animal kingdom. This resulting in a wider cultural gulf between European colonists and North American indigenous peoples than had existed in the first few centuries of contact So, as Schultz argues, it is the same process that relegated European oral traditions of vampires, werewolves, ogres, and trolls to folklore, replaced bestiaries with encyclopedias, and laid the foundation for cryptozoology, or the study of hidden animals, in opposition to science. But the earlier accounts we will explore generally afflict explorers and prospectors, heeding the words of their guides and coming across something truly terrifying. These were, as Schultz explains them, monsters of the frontier, that hazy contested space beyond the margins of a particular culture's settlement. And therefore, in the eyes of the explorers, their days were kind of by design numbered. Schultz mentions in his thesis, when gathering a wide selection of adventure writing, it is clear that as European explorers continued to push westward, the location where monsters and Sasquatch-like wild men were said to live also shifted to keep pace with the retreating frontier of European settlement. But it is these earlier interpretations that we're going to begin with today. As already mentioned, they bring up some interesting themes about exploration and exploring this frontier, this idea of just off the edge of the map there being monsters, a kind of theory that we have come across multiple times, to be honest. It is a nice justification for continuing exploration, and it can be used as a justification for this sort of colonising drive. And as mentioned, it's hardly something we haven't come across before. It's the same sort of motivations that many use to seek the yeti, for example. But we're gonna start with some of these sort of frontier exploration narratives now. So we're gonna start with Clayton Mack. So Bella Coola, British Columbia's own New Hulk nation, Indian Clayton Mack, recounts with the same practicality his run-ins with grizzly bears as with Sasquatch or Bok from his role as a hunter and a guy. I tried to find the pronunciation of Bach, and I can't find it, so I'm just going to go with Bach. I'm very sorry if that is wrong. So born in 1910, he would guide the rich and famous on trophy hunts and entertain them with his campfire tales. And from friend and family position, Dr. Harvey Thomason, we get Max outdoor adventures and guiding experiences collected in Grizzlies and White Guys. And it is Chapter 7, The Sasquatch, reproduced on bigfootencounters.com that we will have a look at now. So crouched at the waterline, apparently digging for clams, Mac came across the creature. He stood up on his hind feet, straight up like a man, and I looked at it. He was looking at me. Gee, it don't look like a bear. It had arms like a human being. It had legs like a human being, and it's got a head like us. He started to walk away from me, walking like a man on two legs. He was about eight feet high. He looked over his shoulder to see me. Grizzly bears don't do that. I'd never seen a grizz run on its hind legs like that. And I'd never seen a grizzly bear look over its shoulder like that. So on the trail of what they believed to be a black bear, Clayton Mack and his companion, a white hunter from California, come across a creature In this case, it was not Mac's cultural knowledge that helped identify the creature when they got close enough to see it for what it really was, but his companions. Clayton. That's not a black bear. That's a Sasquatch. Clayton turned towards him. What do you know about Sasquatches, he says. I come from Northern California. We get him in that country, in the big mountains that get snow on them. Those mountains in Northern California which have glaciers on them. Some people hunt them. But he urged Mac not to shoot, but to observe him through the sights of his gun. The details he describes outline a creature distinctly more man-like than ape-like, immediately a completely different description than we have so far been exploring through the anomalous primate approach. He describes his mouth, always his, not its, Eyes like us, nose like us, but slightly different. He even described him as giving off human-like emotions and body language with him looking friendly. And as implied, he was sure the person he was looking at was a he. To quote, One shot would have killed him dead, just like that. I couldn't shoot him. Like if a person stands over there, I shoot him, same thing. No way I can kill him. I just couldn't kill him. I couldn't kill for one million dollars. A Sasquatch looks too much like a man. In every way that Clayton Mack talks about the encounter, it is as a person, and in stark contrast to the animals he is used to hunting. What's more, there is a price associated with hunting one. Again to quote, My mother told me don't ever shoot a Sasquatch. If you shoot them You're going to lose your mother, or your dad, or else your brother, sister, and all your children will die. It will give you bad luck if you kill them. Leave them. Walk away. A lot of Indian people saw them in the old days, when there were many box. Nowadays they are dying off. Maybe white man's disease. Those left alive are moving north. My brother in Eastern tribes says they are no more. So could it be that Clayton Mack was negotiating not just this struggle between the faith-based idea of the Sasquatch as a person, and the Age of Reason idea of the creature as a relic hominid, but also the implication that the white man's disease was not only displacing native legends, but potentially killing off the creatures themselves too. But there was one crucial difference in Mack's eyes between the creature and man. The creatures could not make fire again to quote him one final time. Sometimes I wonder what kind of animal is a Sasquatch. Half man, half animal, I think. Just like a man, but can't make fire, which seems to be all. So we'll move on now to another famous encounter. So a Swedish-Canadian outdoorsman tangled up with a family of Sasquatches while penetrating the vast mountains of coastal British Columbia in the 1920s. Again, this is from Raincoast Sasquatch, which I quote extensively. I could not have made this without that book. So Osman's story purportedly never faltered, even when questioned at length on different occasions by John Green, Ivan Sanderson and Renee de Hinden. He recounts the motivation for the adventure to be exploring abandoned mines in the Toba Inlet area, for which he hired an old Indian as a guide. The guide told stories of the gold brought back from the long-lost mine, of guiding a white man to his goal, who one day took off into the mine and never returned. Rumour was it that he had been killed by a Sasquatch. To quote Osman, The Indian said, They have hair all over their bodies, but they are not animals. They are people, big people living in the mountains. So Osman replied to his guide that he knew of the legend and fables of mountain giants, but didn't believe them, or didn't believe the creatures existed today. The Indian said, there may not be many, but they still exist. It should be noted at this point, of course, that the wild man was a long-running staple of European folklore, so the idea of a wild-living, man-like monster was most likely not a totally new concept to Albert Osman, and may have had an effect on how he perceived the events to come. But nonetheless, Osman carried these remarks with him on his solo adventure detailing his finding of some near-perfect campgrounds and making the necessary preparations to camp there. But it is not long before he starts to see signs of a visitor in the night. Small amounts of food start to go missing, seemingly extracted from his belongings, which he had strung up in a precaution against bears. Expecting bears, he says, I looked for tracks but found none. I do not think it was a bear. They always tear up. And make a mess of things but reluctantly coming to the conclusion that he is not alone he prepares to leave camp and rifle by his side he prepares to spend one last night there hoping catch a glimpse of his visitor falling asleep despite his best efforts Osman awakens to the sensation of being carried in his sleeping bag and from the steady bipedal stride and perceived speed He believes he has been taken many miles uphill at a great pace. I knew then this must be one of the mountain Sasquatch giants the Indian told me about, he says. Finally, they stop and he is set down, climbing out of his bags to view in the dim dawn four figures around him, seemingly chattering between themselves. And his perception of their family dynamics paints a picture of an encounter very much human. To quote... They looked like a family, old man, old lady, and two young ones, a boy and a girl. The boy and girl seemed to be scared of me. The old lady did not seem too pleased about what the old man dragged home, but the old man was waving his arms and telling them all about what he had in mind. So it's not hard to see in this some personal parallels a not insignificant amount of projection going on. In viewing them as a family, familiar in many ways perhaps to his own. But in terms of physical description, they met a lot of the physical attributes of modern Bigfoots. The older male was by his estimate nearly eight feet tall, barrel-chested, muscular with long forearms, hairy all over except his hands and feet, and with longer hair on their heads. Even the younger male was said to be seven feet tall, and around 300 pounds in estimated weight. Ostman stays with the family for some time, coming to the conclusion that he cannot safely just leave, living off the rations that he had luckily stored in his bag with him, but quickly dwindling. Although the figures seem curious of him and not outwardly threatening, he knows he has to be careful in his actions to escape them before starving. But he has to do it in such a way as to not provoke anger, as these creatures, even the smallest among them, dwarf him. These are, after all, the creatures he'd heard of of legends, who had been known to take human lives. But Osman also had to contend with the feeling within him that harming the creatures would be tantamount to murder. He decides upon a half-solution. If only I could get the old man to come over to me, get him to eat a full can of snuff, that would kill him for sure, and that way kill himself. I wouldn't be guilty of murder. But even as he contends with this plan, he mulls over his respect for them. And what would happen if someone were to take these individuals out with them to civilization, as he terms it? I don't think we have any right to force our way of life on any people, and I don't think they would like it. The noise and racket in a modern city, they would not like any more than I do. So not only does Osman view his captors as people, he views them with a mutual respect, and to the point he even sees something of himself in them. He does not view these as creatures, he's not talking about animals here, he's talking about people. But still there is a need for him to escape in order to preserve his own life. Ultimately, Osman's plan is a messy success, and he manages to escape back to civilization, injuring the two grown wild men to the point that, by his estimation, there may only be two left of the four after their brush with each other. He neglects to mention the nature of his captives to the logging company he finds as first point of contact with the world after his captivity. It would be his last prospecting trip and only brush with the Sasquatch. He would stick to his story for the decades to come, and his descriptions of the creatures themselves, which were at variance with the common impression at the time, have been confirmed over and over again, again from Rinko's Sasquatch. By the time of Osman's encounter, for many, the attitude towards Sasquatch-like tales was that of quaint interest, But for non-native settlers, they were generally viewed as a good-natured jab at the superstition of native folklore. As mentioned, Osmond was grilled by many famed cryptozoologists in an attempt to get to the heart of his story, to perhaps strip some of the human-like characteristics from his experience, as they did not gel with their hypothesis. But Osmond was constant on the details. This was not some wild animal mistaken at a glance, or metaphorically or spiritually perceived as human-like, but the family group interacted with at length, and in all ways described as human. The last brief account we will use to illustrate these early accounts that form a bridge between Native American and First Nations folklore and the modern Bigfoot myth is known as the Ape Men of Thomas Bay, named for a feared region of southeast Alaska, Thomas Bay. So usually afflicting those who went combing the area for gold, as most of these stories do have a real link with prospecting and conquest. The area had been known to the native Tlingit as the Bay of Death, in reference to a deadly rock slide which destroyed a Tlingit village with more than 500 inhabitants. Nevertheless, the area was a popular spot for those looking to find its rumoured gold, but something else in the mountain finds them. Swarming up the ridge towards me from the lake were the most hideous creatures. I couldn't call them anything but devils, as they were neither men nor monkeys, yet looked like both, their bodies covered with coarse hair. Whenever the men would return to the area, they were met with the feeling that they were being watched, That someone or something with a menacing disposition was right behind them at all time, and that there were hundreds of angry eyes watching them. Again, paraphrase from Renko Sasquatch. This account is from The Strangest Story Ever Told by prospector Harry Culp, reproduced in Renko Sasquatch, and brings up some interesting distinctions in the story of the period. So the use of the term devil and monkey, as noted, most likely had broader associations compared with how we use them today. So it was unlikely, for instance, that the men made much distinction between monkey and ape. We can assume that they were used pretty much synonymously. Hence, the reference to the upright posture was not at a point of contrast to this monkey descriptor, but to sport it. We can assume it means simply bipedal and hairy, but there was a compulsion by some to latch onto this monkey-ape descriptor for their own reasons. So devil, similarly, like monster, as we've previously explored in past weeks, has changed in connotation in the passing decades, and particularly often features in reports of man-like creatures and Sasquatch-like creatures. Man-like, I'd argue, being... A A key point of contrast between these early encounters and the scientific cryptozoological field led by the likes of Drs. Grover Krantz and Jeff Meldrum. There has kind of been a bit of sleight of hand at play here in terms of many of the man like descriptors, many of the things that we perceive as man like, have kind of been co opted and twisted to form something more ape-like or more animal, and that was not accidental. So the word Sasquatch was first used in American media in the 1920s by J.W. Burns, who was a British Columbian teacher in the Lower Francis Valley. And Burns introduced the Anglicized name Sasquatch based on the native Coast Salish name for a large, hair-covered man-like creature, And he brought the term to public attention in his article Introducing BC's Hairy Giants. But by then, in 1929, writing on the creatures had shifted from these personal accounts of genuine alarm and fear in the the likes of Osman's account, to sceptical mockery. So when explaining why he struggled to find evidence for the creatures discussed in the article, he points to a Native American excuse, probably made up by him, the white man don't believe, he make joke of the Indian. And that honestly says more about his attitude than it does any implied superstition on Native American fronts. So by this point, the point at which Albert Osman was trying to get people to believe in his ordeal, Sasquatch stories in many ways had become a simple trope, a way to mock Indigenous voices, a way to paint Europeans as brave and pioneering, and a scientific point of contrast to the superstitious Native Americans as some perceived it. It has also been shown to highlight a kind of class divide, with belief in the creatures relegated to a low-class attribute. So Burns, for instance, mentions Indian and white trappers in the same breath, indicating to him that belief in this was a weakness he believed afflicted a certain class of non-native as well as native americans and first nation peoples he also though seemed surprised that to quote him the indians are reluctant to talk about sasquatch with him even when he describes them as simple-minded and unimaginative folk In what I think he thinks is a defense against them potentially having made up these stories for Western amusement, there is just so much to unpack in that statement that I'm honestly not even going to touch it. What's more, Burns also introduced the world to British Columbia's Hairy Apes. An ape reference, which I hope you'll get the impression when we go through the legends later, appears to be a European settler's twist on some genuine Native American legends that they had come across and a kind of reshaping them for a particular palette. So Schultz hypothesis is that it may be linked to the high profile discovery of the gorilla in the late 1860s, or this being the first time many people had seen one, albeit it was not a living specimen. And much of the world had gone a bit ape crazy. And to see this seeming monster realized as a real animal, left people hungry for more of this, It was believed that some of the Sasquatch tales from more recent years may have taken some of this ape fever and prescribed it onto the varied legend. It also, of course, entangled it with some of the really dodgy World War II era anthropology, which cryptozoology had to work to disentangle itself from, where some people, like the Carlton Coons of this world, sought to rank human races and justify differing fossil ancestors for some. So, some of the legends which situate Sasquatch like creatures as brothers to Native Americans and also had a prescribed ape like twist on it were rife for exploration and exploitation and just some of the worst racial theories that you can imagine. That was floating around, unfortunately. It's something that you have to mention. But as we'll explore, these creatures in Native American legend are not referenced in relation to man as a fossil ancestor or some kind of genetic cousin to humans, i.e. sharing some man-like physical appearance, but they are considered in most cases to be people of their own. But whether they are mountain giants, forest wild men, or something spiritually connected to man varies. So native ethnographer Gail Hypine lists more than 200 different names for Sasquatch-like creatures, among native North American tribes. But to quote Clayton Mack again, all the Indians up and down the coast have the same name for Sasquatches, bookwoos, or box. Many different languages, but the same name for Sasquatch. In Paulity's exploration of the Bigfoot phenomenon in Tribal Bigfoot and the Hooper Project, which I struggled to get hold of but sounds incredibly useful in this. He repeatedly comes across a very key point of contrast with where we have been, the language of the Sasquatch. And this language, it is believed, has overlap with Native American tongues. So as Paul Eadie says, I have talked to many Native Americans who were told by their elders that if they were ever confronted by Bigfoot to speak in their native language, apologise and slowly back away facing the creature... So of the few tapes of captured Sasquatch sound, there are some who believe that there is a similarity with Native American tongues. But the exact nature of this relationship is unclear. But it is in clear contrast to the animal-like calls of anomalous primates. So I will go over briefly some of the differences between the Bigfoot we have previously spoken of and the Sasquatch-like creatures of Native American and First Nations legends. We will then do a brief survey of some of the more specific legends and beliefs next week. So, the Bigfoot of anomalous ape, anomalous primate research is a hominid or ape like relict species, potentially a human relative, but not necessarily a people of their own. In fact, mentions of modern Bigfoot as people like are quite rare. So, their calls are supposed to be animal like occasionally encompassing whistles or knocks, but very rarely language. They are said to avoid human detection altogether, to the point that they have managed to evade humans for hundreds of years. They are solitary. When spotted, they are typically only spotted as grown adults. Hairy all over, and ape-like. And they are a separate species to human although potentially a distant relative to humans, but nonetheless they are inhuman. To contrast, and again to simplify broadly, in native folklore, they are typically wild men or people of the woods or mountains. They are a people, possessing language of their own, culture of their own, civilizations of their own. They are sometimes said to kidnap women or children, approaching them at times in a curious manner and occasionally integrating them into their society in a process that is sometimes but not always reversible. They are said to live in family groups, sometimes spotted as parents with children. They have long head hair in human-like patterns but also a hairy body as well. And some myths situate them as transformed from human with the ability to transform back in certain specific circumstances, or in other words, in a kind of spectrum between human and another creature and anywhere along this line as a transformed being. So we will explore the specifics of some of these characteristics next week. So, rather naively, I thought I might be able to do this in one part. I don't know what was going through my brain. I've already had to delay this episode as it was just not where I wanted it to be in terms of research, and honestly, I should have taken that for the warning that it was. But I will be back next week with a survey of the actual Native American legend, or some of them, as as you will be aware, the task of a a true overview of all Sasquatch-like legend is. Beyond the scope of one podcast, but I have done my best to find credible sources on some illuminating legends that I'm sure will, you'll will enjoy and that help to highlight this stark contrast between modern Bigfoot lore and native Sasquatch legends. In the meantime, you can find me wherever you enjoy your podcast, and you can chat with me on Twitter as Weird Horizon and on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast. And search Weird Horizon Podcast on YouTube for episodes there. Also, I will hopefully see you next week. But for now, bye.